question for Christian parents. Do you tell your children that Santa Claus is real or do you tell your children that Santa Claus is fake? The reason I'm asking this question, and by the way, I asked this question on Instagram yesterday and it uh, somewhat blew up. I got, I think, 5,000 responses, not just, in the, not just in the poll that I posted. I got 5,000 messages from parents all across the country about how they handle Santa Claus with their children. The reason I'm asking is because... Uh, because I'm not sure what I'm going to do with Lady Baby yet. My husband and I are not sure how we're going to handle the Santa Claus question with our daughter. I mean, she's only 10 months, so it's not really relevant this year, I guess, but it will be next year. And it's sort of a conundrum in the sense that I don't want her to confuse reality with fantasy. I am going to do my best Um, make my best effort to impart to her, you know, the true meaning of Christmas, that Jesus is born. And I don't want her to confuse that reality, that Jesus is born with the fantasy, the imagination of Santa Claus, that Santa's watching, you know, watching your every move if you're naughty or nice, and then comes down the chimney and brings presents. You know, it's a fun fantasy, sure, but I don't want her to be confused about um, what is real and what is not real when I am trying to instill in her a faith, a Christian faith um, about Jesus. I also don't want to lie to her. I don't want her to get to be, what what age do kids even find out when they believe in Santa Claus? What age do kids figure out that it's not true? I don't want her to get to that age, maybe first grade or something, and look at me and say, you told me this was true and it's not true, because that's also confusing. So those are kind of the arguments in favor of, you know, telling telling her that Santa's a fictional character, telling her that it's a fun pretend game that we play, you know, like Frosty or like Rudolph, but not telling her that it's real. On the other hand, I believed in Santa and I turned out fine. <laughs> so there's that. Although I will say my mom, uh, I asked my mom about this and she said that she never actually lied to us. She just let us believe what we heard. Um, and when we actually asked her eventually whether Santa Claus was real or not real, she told us the truth. In fact, I actually remember the moment that I realized that Santa was fake. I was riding in the car with my mom and it was just me and my mom, which was odd since I am one of five siblings. There was usually a whole bunch of us, but it was just me and my mom. And I just realized it was during Christmas season before Christmas. And I realized how unrealistic it was that someone, that Santa Claus would come down the chimney. So I turned to her and I asked her, is Santa Claus real? And she says, no. And for me, and I know this is a different experience than some people have. For me, this was not a moment of betrayal. I did not feel that, you know, my innocence was shattered, that this was just, you know, it didn't break my heart and break my spirit. Actually, opposite. I felt super, super cool. Like, I was now in the in crowd. Like, I knew what the adults knew. And so I felt super cool. But I know that that's not the same for a lot of kids. So my question to Christian parents is, what? how do you handle Santa Claus with your children? What do you tell them? Do you tell them that he's real? Do you tell them that he's a fictional character? There were actually some parents who responded um, on Instagram yesterday who said that they do a hybrid. They say that Santa's Jesus's helper. And I gotta say, that's exactly what I do not want to do. That is what I want to avoid because that's, I mean, that's weaving the two together. That's really fundamentally confusing. This is, And this is an important topic to talk about, I think, as Christians and as conservatives, because how we interact with our children, as parents, how we interact with our children, that's actually what matters most. That matters more than politics. That matters more um, than pop culture. That matters more than political discourse. How we interact with our children is the most important of all because as parents, of course, we are called to form our children to be holy. But it's also, we're also forming the next generation of citizens of the United States of America. Politics, obviously, we've heard this a million times, it begins at home. Um, So if we forget, if we forget about the family, if we forget about how important these family issues are, Um, then politically, we as conservatives, we're going to be two steps behind the left because we will be fighting for the minds of people after those people's minds have already been indoctrinated by the leftist children. That's why the left 
fights for public schools. That's why they use them public schools as indoctrination centers because they know children um, are children's minds are ripe for indoctrination because they're ripe for formation. So, as parents, obviously, it's our responsibility to form our children's minds, and it is more important than any political thing. But I, I, I really am truly interested in everyone's input on this. If you are a Christian, how do you handle the question of Santa Claus? Do you tell your kids that he's real? Do you tell your kids that he's fake? I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. So yesterday I was pretty cynical about the Supreme Court and the arguments that happened in front of the Supreme Court regarding Roe v. Wade. Well, I guess specifically regarding Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, which is the Mississippi law that prohibits abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And I was very cynical. I said, no, I don't think that the court is going to overturn Roe v. Wade because I just think that there are too many squishes on the courts. You know, the three, there's the three conservatives, there's the three liberals, and then I think there's the three squishes. And so I was pretty cynical about that. Um, I might have been wrong. And I want to talk about that in just a second. But first, I want to talk to you about AMAC. The Liz Wheeler Show today is sponsored by AMAC. Did you know that there is a conservative advocacy and benefits organization with more than 2 million members and counting? It's called AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has become one of the most impactful conservative organizations in America. Joining AMAC gives you access to money-saving benefits, cutting-edge news, and a magazine full of insightful takes on today's most important issues. But most importantly, AMAC is working tirelessly to preserve the freedom secured by our Constitution. With a full-time presence on Capitol Hill, AMAC is pushing back against the efforts to defund our police and weaken our borders and replace your freedom with government controls. So stand with me and over 2 million patriots by joining right now at amac.us forward slash Liz. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Liz. The benefits are great, but the cause is greater. So join today at amac.us forward slash Liz. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Liz. You'll be glad you did. It's worth it. Okay, so Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. The arguments happened yesterday in front of the Supreme Court. And I, I don't know about you. It, it was about two hours of arguments. And I was shocked when I listened to these. I was shocked at how weak the arguments from the pro-aborts were. The pro-aborts, there were, there were essentially... Um, the, the representation, the attorneys for Jackson Women's Health Organization, it's the only licensed abortion clinic in Mississippi. And then there was the Biden administration who is arguing in favor of abortion here. And their arguments, I was expecting better from their arguments. I was expecting more nuance. I was expecting more legalese. I don't know. I was expecting it to be a little more elegant of an argument from the left. And it really, really wasn't. The crux of the left's argument in favor of um, abortion, essentially in favor of Roe v. Wade, was twofold. They were arguing that Roe is some sort of super precedent, that precedent cannot be overturned, um, even if the original ruling that set the precedent was wrong, which is an insane argument to make, an insane argument to make. It's also just contradictory of our nation's legal history. The Supreme Court has overturned precedent. We talked about this yesterday on the show, has overturned precedent when they determined it to be wrong. I mean, Plessy versus Ferguson upheld racial segregation in the United States. Almost 60 years later, the Supreme Court overturned that with Brown versus Board of Education because it was wrong. Plessy was wrong to begin with. It was unconstitutional to begin with. So this idea that the length of time that a Supreme Court ruling is uh, on the books or stands somehow creates it into this super precedent that can't be overturned, even 
if one acknowledges that it's egregiously wrong, that is absurd. That is the mo- that's the weakest, most desperate argument that I think I've ever heard when it comes to abortion. It's just a terrible legal argument. That was the first argument from the pro-aborts. The second argument was just unscientific. They claimed that abortion is about a woman's body and a woman's body only, about women's bodily autonomy, and that the government uh, has no right to force women to be pregnant. Well, that's true. The government doesn't have a right to force women to get pregnant, but that's not what the government is doing. The government is, uh, or should be, protecting the interests and the rights, the right to life of that unborn child. And the pro boards, here's the thing, they didn't even acknowledge that there's this competing interest between the woman's right and the unborn child's right. They didn't even acknowledge that. They just completely ignored the unborn child. And again, I was surprised. I thought there'd be more nuance. I thought it would be a little bit more elegantly constructed of an argument, but it wasn't. That was their essentially their entire argument. And um, Justice Clarence Thomas asked the counsel at one point, the pro-abortion counsel, uh, to identify the constitutional right, the specific constitutional right that protects abortion. Thomas says, is it privacy? autonomy, what would it be? And this is what the pro-abortion lawyer said. She said, this was Rickleman, by the way, for anybody who wanted to know which lawyer it was. She goes, it's liberty. It's the textual protection in the 14th Amendment that the state cannot deny someone liberty without the due process of law. So again, this is the most insane argument. This is the weakest argument that I've heard. It gives me a little bit of hope that something good might come of this case, whether it be completely overturning Roe v. Wade or allowing states to restrict abortion, because this argument that there is some secret, unwritten right to abortion inherent to the 14th Amendment, especially in this uh, clause that the state cannot deny someone liberty without the due process of law, what about the unborn baby? A woman doesn't just have a right. This doesn't just have the liberty to kill her unborn child. If, if this were the precedent, what would the limiting principle be? Would I, as a woman, just have this inherent liberty enshrined in the 14th Amendment to murder someone who is inconvenient to me, to assault someone who is inconvenient to me, to rape someone if I so choose? No, of course not, because those actions violate the constitutionally protected fundamental human rights of somebody else. So as I said, this is one of the weakest arguments. The liberal justices, so we had Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer, they're, uh, they, they obviously tipped their cards. They are in favor of Roe v. Wade. But their reason for being in favor, they don't, they, the reason for being in favor isn't even any kind of complicated legalese that has to do with how they've read into the 14th Amendment this right to privacy and then read into this right to privacy Um, a right to abortion. No, no, they only care about precedent. They only care that this has been on the books, that Roe v. Wade has been on the books since the 1970s, Um, which is insane. It's totally insane. They have no constitutional argument for this, so they just want to pretend that they they hands off, that it's already been settled law. Well, settled law, I um, am glad to tell you, can be overturned. So now let's turn to the conservative justices. So we have Thomas, whose views are very clear, on this, Thomas actually was the only justice sitting on the Supreme Court during Planned Parenthood versus Casey. He made his views very clear back then that he thinks Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided and should be overturned. Um, Alito, I think, is pretty conservative. I think we can count on him to overturn Roe v. Wade. Alito asked um, the U.S. Solicitor General 
if it's ever acceptable for the court to overturn precedent simply because the precedent is egregiously wrong. And Biden's solicitor general said that no. She said the court has never considered that enough of a reason to depart from precedent. Again, this is part of their insane argument. So even if you acknowledge that something is constitutionally egregious, that it is a violation of the Constitution, the Biden administration is arguing that the court should not overturn that because there's not a good enough reason to overturn it as if the fact that it's egregiously wrong isn't a reason in and of itself. Crazy, super crazy. So we have um, Justice Thomas, we have Alito, we have Gorsuch. Gorsuch uh, is pretty solidly conservative. I think that we can count on him. So then we have Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Roberts was actually very interesting to listen to today because he focused on what I recommended that we focus on yesterday, and that is the viability, the viability argument. Now, of course, my view on viability, which I believe is the correct view, is that viability does not determine humanity. Viability is a reflection of um, adults, of us, uh, of our actually, our medical advances or our lack thereof of the shortcomings of our medical advances because viability changes based on our medical advances, which means it's a reflection of us and not a reflection on the humanity of that unborn child. I don't think that you can argue about Roe v. Wade or argue about an undue burden standard or argue about Planned Parenthood versus Casey without talking about viability because viability is the standard. You're not allowed to restrict abortion. States are not allowed to restrict abortion um, before the point of viability this arbitrary point that's a reflection of our medical advances and not the humanity of the baby. So Roberts actually was very interested in this arbitrary standard too. He said, and this is a quote from him, he said, if you think that the issue is one of choice, and that's what the pro boards were, were, uh, were arguing, that the woman's choice, this was about women's choice, women's freedom, women's liberty, they said. He said, if you think the issue is one of choice, viability, it seems to me, doesn't have anything to do with choice. If it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks... 15 weeks is what the Mississippi case prohibits abortion after 15 weeks. Why is 15 weeks not enough time? So this I thought was a very interesting question from Roberts because he's poking a hole in the inconsistent argument from the pro-abortion left. Either it is a matter of choice or it's a matter of viability. But it can't be both because 15 weeks obviously would be enough time to make that choice. Um, but you couldn't marry that. You couldn't justify that with the idea of viability being at 24 weeks. So Roberts continually came back to this idea of viability, that if the standard is not viability, what else would the standard be? And the pro-abortion attorneys didn't answer that. They couldn't answer that. They refused to answer that. They said, no, the most principled standard is that standard of viability. They couldn't answer because there is no answer. There is no answer. There is no point in a pregnancy other than the moment of conception at which a non-person becomes a person. It's not at the arbitrary trimester um, framework. It's not at viability. It's not even, it's not at birth. There is no moment during pregnancy where a baby, a not baby becomes a baby other than the moment of conception. And the pro-abortion left knows this. That's why they have to cling to this arbitrary idea of viability. So it'll be interesting to see what Roberts does. I think, I think that this is a signal from Roberts that he is less interested in overturning Roe v. Wade entirely and more interested in doing away with the arbitrary viability standard. Now, what he proposes to replace vi the idea that you can't restrict abortion before viability, what he proposes to replace that, I don't know. It seemed like he was exploring that today. I don't think you can, but um, it was interesting to hear that from Roberts. Similarly, Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, I thought, was more wishy-washy on this issue than he appeared to be during the hearing. He actually was... Um, the harshest, if you will, or he came to the defense the strongest of 
the actual history of the Supreme Court, the idea that you absolutely can overturn settled law and precedent, and that maybe there isn't any such thing as a super precedent um, in the Supreme Court. That's an invented idea. That's that's an invented idea in, well, liberal jurisprudence here. Um, and he actually said, if the court had simply followed stare decisis in cases such as Brown versus Board of Education, which overturned racial segregation, Kavanaugh said, quote, the country would be a much different place. So, I think that's very interesting. Kavanaugh was also interested in the idea of the Supreme Court remaining abortion neutral. He clarified um, with the attorneys arguing in front of the Supreme Court, he clarified that if the Supreme Court were to overturn Roe v. Wade, then that would not be the Supreme Court issuing a blanket um, prohibition on abortion across the United States. It would just send the issue back to the states, which is, of course, accurate. Um, And I believe about half of the states would most likely, what is it, like 26 states that would restrict or ban abortion, and the rest would not. It would be a states-level issue. So all all of this to say, I was pretty cynical yesterday when I said, I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe v. Wade. I don't have a lot of confidence. After hearing hearing these arguments in front of the Supreme Court, I do feel a little more hope. I don't want to make a prediction and say they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. I I don't know. I pray that they do. I hope they do. Um, But I do feel a little bit more hope. So I don't know. I'm going to spend the next, what is it, six months, seven months, praying for these justices, specifically for Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and Roberts. Amy Coney Barrett, by the way, she's the only one I didn't mention. She didn't really tip her hand at all. She asked a question about precedent, which is what I've said about her all along. She has this idea that precedent is so much higher than the Constitution, which um, bothers me because it's incorrect. But beyond that, she didn't say much. She did mention at one time the idea of these drop-off locations, these safe zones where mothers who, you know, were pregnant and carried the baby, gave birth to the baby and didn't want the baby could safely relinquish their baby into the custody of the state at these anonymous drop-off centers. And the reason she mentioned that, I think, I think the reason she mentioned that was to say, we have these now, we didn't have those then, so the justification for this so-called need for abortion that existed back then, you know, isn't justified now. I don't know exactly why she brought that up, um, but she didn't tip her hand the way that the other ones did. Again, a little more hope than I had yesterday. Um, Okay, so the University of Pennsylvania, there's a swimmer. Now, most of you know I was a competitive swimmer in high school. I swam year-round on a club team. Absolutely loved it, loved it. I was planning on swimming in college, um, but then I injured both of my shoulders, dislocated both of my shoulders, and then I was diagnosed with a cell disease. And unfortunately, <laughs> the end of my swimming career was caused by less the shoulders and more um, being diagnosed with a cell disease. I was obviously devastated because I loved swimming. I swam from the time I was like nine years old through um, through age 16, and it was the, my favorite thing in life. It was my absolute favorite thing. I cannot tell you how much passion I had. After I was diagnosed and got sick, I actually, the prayer that I prayed was less that I would be healed um, and from from the disease that I was diagnosed with and more that I would find the something else that I felt as passionately about um, as I did about swimming. Now, of course, we can see now that God has answered that prayer because this is what I'm passionate about. But all, all of this is to say, is to express how much I absolutely love um, competitive swimming. I absolutely love the sport. I hope that I'm not going to push my kids to get into it, but I'm going to introduce it to them and hope that uh, they take to it. And I don't know if my daughter, I don't know if Lady Baby will have that opportunity because it seems that women's swimming is on the chopping block right now. We're going to talk about that in just a second, but first I want to talk to you about Soul. Today's episode is also brought to you by Soul. Soul is the sustainable orthopedic footwear company that seeks to enhance your mobility 
improve your foot health, to keep you in the game longer by building shoes from the inside out. So let's start with some questions here. What is a footbed? Let's start with this. 85% of the population will have one or more foot-related ailments in their lifetime. We're talking about plantar fasciitis. We're talking about Morton's neuroma. A lot of these, admittedly unsexy ailments, can be helped with a footbed. Soul has created a footbed a great place, they define a footbed, to be a great place to rest your soul. That's affordable, customizable, and improves people's everyday foot comfort. Millions of customers rave about this product. Two thirds of soul customers have two or more pairs of footbeds. Once you know the comfort, the pain relief, the performance enhancement and injury prevention benefits of soul footbeds, you will want them in every shoe you own. Soul has an amazing offer for first time customers, 50% off if you use my URL, yoursoul.com slash Liz. That is Y-O-U-R-S-O-L-E dot com slash Liz. So you can try soul for yourself. They are so confident that you will love them that they have a 90 day money back guarantee. It's very hard to go wrong. Your soul.com slash Liz. That is your S-O-L-E dot com slash Liz. So I worry that women's swimming is on the chopping block. The radical left is going to destroy women's swimming, which breaks my heart because, like I said, I'm not going to be a pushy parent. I'm not going to force Lady Baby to go into swimming just because I loved it. But I hope she loves it. I hope she wants to swim. It's an amazing experience. Well, maybe it won't even be an option for her to swim. Maybe she will feel completely disincentivized from even trying to compete in women's swimming because at the University of Pennsylvania, there's a swimmer by the name of Will Thomas who competed as Will Thomas, a man, for three years of his swimming career. Now, Will Thomas is competing as Leah Thomas, identifying as a woman and competing in the women's competition. Yes, this individual is identifying as transgender, born male, now identifies as female, and Leah Thomas is destroying the competition. Leah Thomas is decimating the female competition. Leah Thomas has the second fastest 500 freestyle time in the nation after a swim meet this past weekend. This is, this is devastating. Will Thomas, by the way, wasn't that good. I mean, he was good, but he wasn't that good. Leah Thomas destroys the women. This past weekend, Leah Thomas defeated the field by six seconds. The second place finisher was six seconds behind. To put this in context of how much six seconds is in swimming, think of Michael Phelps. Think of these photo finishes in the Olympics where Michael Phelps is touching the wall and it's like one one hundredth of a second. That's very typical in the, in the sport of swimming. Swimming comes down to hundreds of seconds. That's all that separates first and second and third place finishers. That's all that keeps someone off the medal stand. That's all that keeps them from being champions. Six seconds is like a third of a lap. This is like outside of the flags. This is insane. This is ruining women's swimming. Then, and Thomas told, um, the student newspaper, being trans has not affected my ability to do this sport and being able to continue is very rewarding. Well, it's not about you. It's about every other woman. This is so devastating to me. It's so infuriating to me, but it really breaks my heart because I love women swimming. I wanna pass down this tradition of swimming to my daughter and to other young women. And if this is what's going to happen, if biological men are going to be allowed to compete in women's swimming, then the sport itself is going to be destroyed. This is so unfair. This is so unjust. And the NCAA, by the way, should be ashamed. The NCAA, their defense of allowing um, biological men to compete as women if they identify as women is so grotesque. This is what they say. Many people may have a stereotype that all transgender women are unusually tall and have large bones and muscles, but that is not true. 
A male to female transgender woman may be small and slight, even if she is not on hormone blockers or taking estrogen. It is important not to overgeneralize. The assumption that all male-bodied people are taller, stronger, and more highly skilled in a sport than all female-bodied people is not accurate. Like what? What are you talking about? This is, that is not reality. Reality is Will Thomas transitioning to Leah Thomas, competing as a woman, even though he was born as a biological male, competing as a woman and destroying the women's competition. This, like I said, this is going to destroy women's swimming and it breaks my heart because I love, I love swimming. And you know what? It's not transphobic to say this. It's not homophobic to say this. It's not intolerant to say this. It's not exclusionary to say this. It's none of that. You are standing up for women. You are standing up for young girls. You are standing up for children who don't have the capacity yet to make this argument. You're standing up for opportunities for them to actually succeed in sport. Women's sports will become obsolete if we let them be taken over by mediocre men. Period. That's all there is to it. Speak out, speak up, defend women's sports. It's really important. This sport was so formative to me. I wouldn't be who I was, who I am, without my experience in competitive swimming. And to imagine my life without this, to imagine the, to imagine women's swimming being decimated by men, rendering biological women like myself completely obsolete in this sport is, as I said, it's beyond the pale. It's totally beyond the pale. It's very important that we talk about this issue. Um, a fourth teenager, tragically, this is a heart-rending issue. A fourth teenager has died in the Michigan school shooting. Um, just, it just guts you to hear. It's a 14-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old. The football star died, the high school football star on this team at the school died trying to disarm the shooter. What an absolute hero, an absolute hero. I pray for the repose of his soul. I hope that he is sitting with Jesus right now. I hope that Jesus, you know, is giving him a high five, doing the greatest thing of all, laying down one's life for one's friends, my goodness. But you might notice politically something different about this school shooting. This school shooting is not headlining on the mainstream media. When you turn on the television, it's not the segment, it's not the segment lead. The gun control groups are strangely silent about this shooting, even though four teenagers were horrendously murdered by, um, by this, this killer. So why is that? Why is this school shooting being handled differently? Why isn't this a news item? Why isn't this sparking protests? Why isn't this, you know, prompting Democratic legislators to introduce bills to ban guns? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because the firearm that was used in the commission of these murders was not an AR-15. The firearm that was used in the commission of these murders was a handgun. That's it. That's the reason. That's the reason Democrats are silent about this. That's the reason the gun control groups are silent about this, because the Democrats exploit school shootings to push their pre-existing political agenda when they feel that they can, when the elements match their pre-existing political agenda. So Democrats want to ban guns. They have started with AR-15s. They try to portray AR-15s as being some scary assault assault-type rifle weapon of war. They've painted them completely unrealistically. They ignore the facts and the data about how often AR-15s are used in the commission of murders versus handguns, for example. That doesn't matter to the left with most school shootings. Whenever AR-15s are used, this is the reason. If you want to protect children, if you want to save lives, you will ban AR-15s, they tell us. They exploit those school shootings, but when a school shooting happens, when a killer murders four teenagers and he uses a handgun, well, suddenly the mainstream media isn't interested. The Democrats are quiet and the gun control groups look the other way. And this is very important to note 
it's very important for us to put a pin in this because it proves that the Democrats don't care about solving school shootings. They don't care at all about prescriptions that would prevent this or mitigate this or stop this. They pretend to care, but they don't. All they care about is their pre-existing political agenda and using tragedy, using fear, using grief, using terrorism to try to push that political agenda. I don't, I can't think of anything, any time, any incident that this has been clearer since the Waukesha terror attack at the Christmas parade. When the Democrats, this doesn't fit their narrative, didn't fit their narrative because the perpetrator was black. The perpetrator was a black nationalist actually, a black nationalist who called for violence against white people. And so suddenly it was just the car that drove through the parade. The terrorist, the attacker, the black nationalist was left out of the narrative because it contradicted the Democrats' political ideology and their political agenda. Make note of this, my friends. Make note of how the Democrats handle tragedy, what they ignore and what they exploit, because that tells you the truth about their characters, their intentions, and their political motivations more than anything else. It's horrifying. Horrifying. So I do have a difference of opinion compared to some conservatives on the Chris Cuomo um, incident. He's been suspended indefinitely from CNN, which, you know, he's terrible. He's a political hack. He propagates the radical left's talking points. He's ideologically just about Marxist. He's a liar. He's disrespectful. I mean, he is a terrible guy, right? He's a terrible guy. He's a political operative masquerading as a journalist. And, you know, that's reason enough to fire him. However, Chris Cuomo was suspended from CNN because he helped his brother, um, he used his sources, I should say. He helped his brother, Governor Andrew Cuomo, by using his sources to dig up dirt on the women that were accusing Governor Cuomo of you know, sexual harassment, uh, sexual abuse, what have you. And that, that is reason, by the way, to be suspended from CNN if you are abusing, um, if you're abusing your platform, you're abusing your position, you're pretending to be this neutral arbiter of fact. Meanwhile, you're not actually a neutral arbiter. You are covering up for your brother who is credibly accused of sexual misconduct here. But here's, here's, a, here's my difference of opinion here. There are conservatives, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna call them out by name because Jesse Kelly is one of them, and he's a good friend. I hope he listens to this. Um, I'd be interested in hearing his response to this. And Tucker Carlson also. They, they were propagating the same narrative that, um, that Chris Cuomo deserved to be fired for what he is notwithstanding his brother, but doesn't deserve to be suspended because he helped his brother because they were presenting this idea that family comes first and that your ultimate loyalty is to your brother. And so we can't blame Chris Cuomo for helping his brother. Every brother should help a brother the way that Chris Cuomo helped his. And they're acting like this is a family first um, argument that this is what conservatives, this is how conservatives should be viewing this. And I think that's entirely incorrect. First of all, it's not Christian. It's not biblical um, at all. In fact, it would have been Chris Cuomo's responsibility as a Catholic, which he's supposed to be, to call out his brother. And if you look at these text messages, he's not calling out his brother. He's he's trying to discredit these women. Um, and I don't think he even believes that they're false allegations. He's just trying to be a fixer. He's just trying to help his brother stage a cover-up. So it's, it's not a Christian thing to help someone commit a wrong, to help someone... Um, continue in their immorality to help someone try to avoid the accountability and the consequences of not only a wrongdoing, but potentially a crime. So that's not, that's, that's not family first. That's not a Christian worldview. What that is, is that's tribalism. That's tribalism. And that is not something that conservatives should be encouraging. That's actually um, the opposite of what conservatives should be encouraging. We don't want to be 
tribal, we don't want to be tribalist in the sense that we want to be able to say, hey, you Republican president, we don't think that you are adhering to the Constitution. Hey, you Republican representatives, don't vote for that. Hey, you Republican senators, we don't like what you're doing. That's what a conservative movement should be able to do within our political movement. We should be able to say, yeah, I think, I think this Republican president did a good job on X, Y, and Z, and I think that they made mistakes on A, B, and C. We shouldn't have to have this entire, um, it's, it's beyond loyalty. It's basically pledging fealty to each other where we never admit that someone does something wrong. We don't want that tribalism in politics, and we shouldn't want that tribalism in our personal lives either, because that's what it is. It's tribalism. It's not family first. It's certainly not a Christian biblical worldview. So I do think that some conservatives are getting that wrong. Chris Cuomo deserves to be suspended for CNN, from CNN for his unethical um, behavior that violates journalistic ethics um, for many, many, many reasons. But I don't think that he should be defended for defending his brother. I think that's a mistake. Also, let's not forget, let's not let Chris Cuomo become a distraction from Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo, who sent literally thousands of elderly people, grandmas and grandpas in the state of New York to their death in nursing homes by forcing nursing homes to accept COVID positive patients, even though when you put a COVID positive patient in a nursing home, it is ripe for an epidemic and all of those people are vulnerable and it caused the death of thousands and thousands of elderly people in New York. Let's not let Chris Cuomo being suspended from CNN distract us from the crime that Andrew Cuomo committed. The fact that people's family members are not with them this Christmas because Andrew Cuomo sent them to their deaths in nursing homes and then lied about it. He tried to cover it up because he knew what he did was wrong. That's the story that we should be talking about. That's the accountability that we should be demanding. Andrew Cuomo, not Chris Cuomo. So pivot from CNN to CNBC. This is actually is, is insane as something you would see on CNN. CNBC, an anchor on CNBC, um, is now advocating that the United States, I guess on a federal level, he didn't talk about the legal mechanism for this, but that we have forced universal vaccination for COVID-19 in the United States. Yes, forced. That every person is forced against their will to be vaccinated and that this is enforced by the United States military. Oh yes, it is as insane as it sounds. Take a listen to this. Lord knows what happened if you didn't partake. But back then, anyone who refused to get vaccinated would get ratted out immediately because we knew that person could hurt other people. The commonweal was a, a commonweal. Now we're engaged in a similar struggle with COVID and Eisenhower would be aghast. We have immunocompromised people who are incubators for every variant to come, walking around lawfully unvaccinated. That's psychotic. We have companies that have tried hard to get people vaccinated and now backing down. We have governors who want to be president by grandstanding on a foolish state's right issue, the right to get sick and get other people sick. So it's time to admit that we have to go to war against COVID. Require vaccination universally. Have the military run it. If you don't want to get vaccinated, you better be ready to prove your conscientious objector status in court. And even then, you need to help in the war effort by staying home until we finally beat this thing. So... This is a very interesting um, tactic that the left uses that they think they'll get away with 
but they won't get away with it because it contradicts reality. So what he is doing is he is assuming that you do not know the history of vaccine mandates in our country, that you do not know the reality of what happened during you know, the early 1900s when we had smallpox epidemics and localities issued vaccine mandates and forced people to get vaccinated. So what he is doing is he is assuming that you don't know the history. He's assuming that he can make these gross generalizations that, oh, we've done this before. We have a history of vaccine mandates in our country that we should do it again because we have the precedent for doing this. It's not something new. It's not something controversial. It's been done and we're fine. We survived. He's making the mistake of not reading his history books because what actually happened when there were forced vaccine mandates, when there was this universal vaccination, when people were coerced, not just coerced, when they were forcibly injected with a smallpox vaccine, what actually did happen? What did happen? What did it look like? Well, if you look at history, you'll see what it looks like. What happened is police officers went to people's doors in the dead of night, we're talking 3 a.m., battering on their doors with their nightsticks. When people would open the doors, they would get handcuffed and arrested and forcibly injected out there in the street. And you know who was targeted for these handcuffed, forced injections? Black people. Black people bore the brunt of this. Black people were the ones who woke up to police hammering on their doors. They were arrested and handcuffed, suffered this indignity and forcibly injected against their will. Black people were the ones who suffered for this. So when you hear nutcases going on psychotic rants like the CNBC anchor, talking about this history, this precedent of vaccine mandates, you ask them, what is the history? What did happen? We have to ask ourselves, do we want to repeat this history? Because there's a lot of history in our country that we don't want to be repeated. We have a history of slavery. We have a history of racial discrimination. We have a, a, a history of gender discrimination. We have a history of sending Japanese citizens or Japanese Americans to internment camps. We're talking American citizens who have Japanese heritage to internment camps. There's a lot of history in our country that we don't want to be repeated. Just because it's history doesn't mean that there's a justification for repeating it. The same with forced vaccination. Forced vaccination targeted black Americans. Now coming from a party, the Democratic Party, the left, who claims that even race neutral laws are racist, this is the crux of critical legal studies, You'd think that they'd realize that a law like forced vaccination or a mandate like forced vaccination did have a disparate impact on people based on the color of their skin. It did impact blacks. Their rights were violated more than white people. I did a whole episode on this. It was episode 57 called The Racist History of Vaccine Mandates. I highly encourage everyone, listen to it again because it is absolutely crazy when you look at the reality of what happened around the smallpox vaccine and around those forced or that universal vaccination that those vaccine mandates it's shocking your jaw will drop when you hear the history and these leftists these leftists that are calling for this they have absolutely no idea what they're calling for so call them out on it okay speaking of politicians who overstep their boundaries marxist politicians either um, it's very interesting. There seems to be this war between Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris, but it's a war in the media. They're not actually talking to each other. There's this, there's an article one day that says, you know, Kamala Harris is going to be teed up to run in, in 2024 when Biden steps aside. And then a the day later, there'll be an article or a day or two later, there'll be an article that says Buttigieg is actually being groomed to be 
the next, you know, the next Democrat it child, the next, the next Democratic president here. And if there's something negative written about Buttigieg, there'll be something negative written about Kamala. There's this little unspoken war that's happening behind the scenes about who's going to be the heir apparent when uh, Biden finally steps aside. I want to talk about that in just a second. But first, I want to talk about American Hartford Gold. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's noticed everything is getting expensive. We are in the biggest economic crisis since 2008. Consumer prices are the highest we have seen in 30 years. Inflation is seemingly here to stay. And if the government continues its out-of-control printing and spending, the dollar could continue its freefall and lose its coveted role as the world reserve currency. So how do you protect your money, your retirement, your savings? Well, American Hartford Gold can show you how to hedge your hard-earned savings against inflation by helping you diversify a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. They'll even help move your existing IRA or 401k out of the volatile stock market into a precious metals IRA, and they make it easy. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. And if you call them right now, they'll give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait, call them now. Call 855-768-1883. That's 855-768-1883 or text Liz to 65532. Again, that's 855-768-1883 or text Liz to 65532. Okay, so Buddha Judge for POTUS, that is, um, it's so laughable. I can't even say it with a straight face. It's so hilarious. This guy, this guy is actually, yes, he's laughable because he's so he's so ridiculous, but he's also something that somebody that shouldn't be underestimated. Trump, President Trump would make fun of him for being Alfred E. Newman. And that's hilarious because he does look exactly like Alfred E. Newman. And he's got the baby face. We all think of Buttigieg as being this like nice boy. He has this, you know, clean cut, nice American boy um, presentation, but that is not at all what he is. Buttigieg is a radical. Also, we shouldn't want a boy to be president. We should want a grown man or a grown woman to be president, not some, you know, baby faced, pie faced, young you know, young upstart who pretends to ride his bike to work when he's actually being trucked in by an SUV and just riding the bike for the photo op. Yeah, he's a liar too. So that's that's exactly what we need in politics. Another politician staging something that is contradictory to reality. But Buttigieg is, in a sense, the perfect Trojan horse for the Democratic Party because of everything that I just said. You know, if you compare him to Kamala Harris. You know, you have Buttigieg, whose presentation is likable. He presents himself as a moderate. He presents himself as, you know, friendly, as calm, as articulate. Compared to Kamala Harris, who is very grating, who has this weird tendency to laugh at inappropriate times, who can't get support even from the Democratic Party. You know, she failed out of the presidential uh, primaries extremely early because nobody liked her, nobody wanted to vote for her. Buttigieg is the perfect Trojan horse for the Democrats because he doesn't come off as as radical as Kamala Harris. So it's almost the same as what the Democrats did with Joe Biden. They presented Joe Biden as being a traditional Democrat, establishment Democrat. You can be comfortable with me because I'm a Democrat that you know, that I'm moderate, that I'm, I'm not far left, I'm common sense, I'm reasonable. That's how they presented Biden, right? Turned out to be a lie. He surrounded himself with absolute Marxists and literal communists, and he's one of the most radical leftist presidents that our country has ever known. And I say that with full historical knowledge of Lyndon B. Johnson, Woodrow Wilson, FDR, Jimmy Carter, Barack Obama. Biden is worse. Biden is so radical leftist, we have never seen this before, but he, was, he, he got into office because they painted him as a moderate. So Buttigieg is the perfect Trojan horse because he can be painted as a moderate because his demeanor is so milk toast, so mild-mannered, but 
on which issues? I wish that there was a reporter who would ask Secretary Pete this question, which issues, on which issues is Pete actually a moderate? Because if you go through a laundry list of issues, Pete Buttigieg is extremely far left. We're talking Marxist level leftist on almost all political issues. He supports government-run healthcare. He doesn't want a border wall. Um, he says no human being is illegal, which is code word for amnesty. He wants to give D.C. statehood, which is blatantly unconstitutional. He wants to abolish the Electoral College. Um, he praised Bloomberg's soda ban in New York City. I mean, you want to talk about big daddy government? Praised Bloomberg's soda ban. He wants higher taxes on the rich. He wants to stack the Supreme Court. He supports the Equality Act. I mean, this guy is so far left. He's so radically left. And he admitted this. These are, these are all, this list that I made, of radical leftist positions, he articulated each and every one of these either on his campaign website or in the Democratic primary debates leading up to uh, the 2020 election. He said all of these things. I mean, it, during his town hall, during the town hall with Buttigieg, during that primary, he actually said he wanted to raise taxes. He wanted four types of taxes to be raised. He wanted higher marginal income tax rates. What happens if you raise income tax rates, while well, it drives the wealthy away, it penalizes job creators, it's horrible for the economy. He wants a quote-unquote reasonable wealth tax. A wealth tax is literally unconstitutional. It's asset forfeiture. It is absolutely not within the realm of what the government is allowed to do to penalize someone just because they own a certain amount of money. Um, he wants a financial transactions tax, and he wants to close the corporate loophole. I mean, this is really radical leftist economic stuff. This is socialist. It's Marxist. It's anti-free market. It's anti-limited government. This is what he wants. He said, I trust women to draw the line when it comes to late-term abortion. Late-term abortion, he trusts women to draw the line. We don't make any sort of comment like that when it comes to any other kind of violent crime. You don't trust women to draw the line when it comes to gun violence. You don't trust men to draw the line when it comes to rape. No, you put a statute on the book, make it a crime to violate somebody else's fundamental, inherent, constitutionally protected human right. But Buttigieg wants late-term abortion to be legal. So incredibly radical. He has supported the idea of erasing Thomas Jefferson from history. He supported a national gun license, which is essentially a gun registry, um, reparations for slavery. He supports, this guy is so nutty. He's the perfect Trojan horse because he comes off as this little mild-mannered, milk-toast, baby-faced, nice boy next door from the Midwest, and he's not. He's not at all. In fact, Pete Buttigieg's father, Joseph Buttigieg, was an admitted Marxist. Now, this is not just based on a conglomeration of Buttigieg's father's political views that we can infer, well, based on those political views, those are Marxist views, you must have been a Marxist. No, no. This guy was a professor who openly said that he wished to inject Marxism into the wider culture. Inject Marxism into the wider culture. He spoke fondly of the Communist Manifesto, did Buddha Judge's father. He was a scholar of Antonio Gramsci. You might remember our discussion on Antonio Gramsci when we were talking about critical theory being the grandfather of critical race theory and how this Marxist critical theory morphed into the Marxist critical race theory that we are fighting right now in the United States, how Anthony Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, the founder of the Italian Communist Party, was a big part of this. He wanted to re-educate the working class um, in order to spur them to rise up in a Marxist revolution. This is who Pete Buttigieg's father was. 
He was an advisor to Rethinking Marxism, which was an academic journal dedicated to Marxism. I mean, I can go on and on and on here. This guy was a committed Marxism. And to my knowledge, nobody has ever asked Pete Buttigieg, do you ascribe to your father's ideology? And if not, why not? And where do you differ? No one has ever, has anybody ever asked Pete Buttigieg? If they have, send me the video, send me the text, because I don't think that anybody has ever asked Secretary Pete that question. And based on, based on Pete Buttigieg's policy positions that he has supported, that he has embraced, it looks like all of the domestic policy positions that Pete Buttigieg says he supports actually would result in injecting Marxism into the water culture, which was his Marxist father's goal. So Pete Buttigieg is the perfect Trojan horse. We can laugh at him and we should mock him. I mean, I, I, is he still on paternity leave? Wouldn't we just love, wouldn't you just love? I would laugh forever if at a White House press briefing, um, I know Biden doesn't answer questions, but didn't he answer a couple of questions this week um, after he was talking about COVID-19 and Omicron? If one reporter would just say, do you know if Secretary Pete's back from paternity leave yet? During, during this, this crisis, this supply chain crisis, this emergency, is Secretary Pete back on the job or is he still learning about bottle feeding? Nobody asks these questions. These are questions that should be asked. Pete Buttigieg is the perfect Trojan horse because he comes off as moderate, but he is not. He'd be able to, he may be able to convince the Democratic electorate that he's moderate unless we expose the truth, unless we make sure that Buttigieg's image reflects the reality of who he is personally and politically. He is a radical leftist ideologue whose family history is Marxism, which he has never disavowed. This guy is very, very dangerous. So laugh at him, but do not underestimate him. Do not. These are the issues that matter. Social issues, cultural issues, family issues. All of that translates into the political issues. And if we sacrifice the social issues, the sexual issues, the cultural issues, the family issues, then we're not gonna stand a chance winning at the ballot box. We're not gonna stand a chance when conservatives are elected into office who aren't committed to fighting these social issues and fighting the culture war. Okay, that's all the time that I have for today. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, please do so on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you watch or listen to your pods. Also, I've been having such a good time with Michael Knowles and Senator Ted Cruz over on The Verdict Podcast. If you haven't had time to check that out, I highly encourage you to do so. It's verdictwithtedcruz.com. We've been having a blast since I've been onboarded as part of the cast of that show. It's really, really fun, really great discussions and uh, some pretty funny discussions that have happened as well. That's verdictwithtedcruz.com. Again, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. And senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.